want to ask a simple question, and you can answer it however you like, however comes to mind. Where are you? Some, some different ways you could answer that question. Zoe, where are you? Here. Okay, that's a very valid way to answer that question. Where are you? I don't know. Frank, where are you? In his 73rd year. Ooh, mind blown. Another way to answer that question. Anybody else? Collins, you're a philosophy guy. Where are you? I don't know. Where are you? Bellingham. Bellingham. Okay. Very, very true. Very concrete. Yeah, I think kind of get the picture. There's different ways to, to look at that question. There's the geolocation of your body. There's where your mind is. Has anyone ever said to you, I, I get this sometimes, where, where are you? I've been talking to you. You're, you're like, it's like you're somewhere else, right? So there's the, the presence of mind of where you are. There's where you are in time and space. As Frank mentioned, there's the, where you are in history. I'm in my 73rd year or I'm in the 21st century. There's the stage of life you're in. Maybe you're in adolescence or you're in retirement years or you're, uh, um, you know, fresh into your career. There's places in life stages. All of these locations, these orientations are vital for knowing where you are and therefore who you are. Back in 2004, I was serving at a, a church in California and Corey and I uh, ended up taking a, a, a one-month backpacking trip in Europe. And it just so happened that we were going to go to Florence and there was a guy in our church, Tony Bonviso, and he was from Italy, from the Tuscany region, uh, and he owned a gelato business. He's a real foodie. Uh, he sells, makes gelato and sells it in San Francisco. And he says, if you're going to Florence, you've got to go to this restaurant, Il Latini. You could eat, if you had to pick one place to eat, you got to go to Il Latini. So Corey and I find out about this place and Il Latini is unique. It, it only serves dinner and they serve it in shifts. So there's for lack of a round, for just for round number sake, let's say they serve dinner at 6 p.m. and you just line up and if you get in, maybe they seat 100 people. If you're one of the 100 people, you get in. And then if not, you have to wait until 8.30 when they seat the next 100 people. And that's it, just no soup for you if you don't make it in that line. So you kind of get in line and they shuffle you in and there's these long tables, it's all family style, it was really cool. So Corey and I are aware that we're in Florence in 2004 in the springtime, and it's kind of warm and dusty a little bit, and there's colors and smells and sounds, and we're trying to figure out what the different people's accents and languages are, because they're all, we're from all around the world in this line of people. And I hear the distinctive Texan twang of an American accent from the South, and, and uh, there are a larger-than-life couple, let's put it that way, and they are complaining about being in Florence, and they say, Next time, we're just going to go to, uh, uh, to Vegas again because they do Italy better than Italy does it. It's, it's cleaner, and it's cheaper, and it's air-conditioned, and we're just like, oh, Lord, um, this is embarrassing. So thankfully, when we got seated, we didn't get seated with those people, but, but we, also had a, we also had a different learning experience. So we all eat family style. There's these big, massive jugs of Chianti, and they bring different massive amounts of courses of food, and you just kind of pick off the plates family style, and at the end of the, the experience, the, the manager of the restaurant, the restaurant who never smiles, comes around, and he's got like a, a waiter with a notepad in the back, and he'll just look at you and say, 50, 45, 60, and that's basically what you owe for your meal. Now, <laughs> I'm sure that we had at least one glass less of wine than the couple across the way from us, across the table, but 
they got 45 and we got 50. But what you got to understand is that when you're in Florence and you're not on your home turf, you're not at Applebee's where there's a set, you know, I'm not going to ask for an itemized receipt. You just kind of like chalk it up to the experience, right? You got to know where you are. And at that moment, I was somewhere else than my homeland. It's easy to get disoriented and to remember or to forget where you are. We talked a little bit at the prayer time about the world news. Uh, uh, there's sicknesses, whether it's just a cold or a flu or cancer or deeper things that, that make us forget or get disoriented about where we're at and who we are. There's loss that, that seems to, when it touches us in a real personal way, puts us in a tailspin and we just get, we just get disoriented in life. And then there's, on a regular basis, there's competing images, whether it's through advertising or other things, about what the good life is, about what life is about. How do we stay oriented in such a confusing world with such divided hearts and such inconsistent emotions? In a very real sense, what we do every time we gather for worship on Sunday is an exercise in remembering we are part of a different kingdom than what is offered to us in the world. We're part of a different story, a different trajectory than what is offered in the latest perfume or car commercial. And this is the reason why we've been exploring the books of Genesis and then Exodus over the past several fall seasons together. If we want to know where we are, it helps to know where we've been, what story we are a part of. This evening, we're going to find ourselves at the end of the book of Exodus, and instead of introducing a bunch of new ideas, at this point, I just want to allow the text to remind us of where we are. Let's pray. Lord, as we have already said and identified, it is easy to get disoriented. There's so many different things, events, and messages that compete for our devotion and our attention and our desire. Although we come here, maybe out of habit, maybe out of duty, but deep down out of a deep longing and a desire to know you and to know who we are, to know our place in this world and our place in this community. We believe that you want to to help us know ourselves and to know you. We believe, in fact, theologically that you've drawn us here, that you've drawn every single person here. And I pray by the power of your spirit you would open us up to what you have to say, that you would orient us, orient us correctly to our time and place in your story. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars he created the sea and the land, and he filled all of this creation with living things, including men and women, human beings created in God's image. After seven days, the story says that God rested, and he took up residence in his creation, and he enjoyed it. And out of all of his creation, he had a special relationship with human beings. He endowed us with the power of great imagination, great freedom to create and to bless, and the most powerful gift of all, he created us with the capacity to love. 
But part of the story, part of the story that you and I embody is that our ancestors took that ability to choose and to love and to imagine, and they imagined a life of loving themselves more than God. They chose a life of autonomy over a life of trust and obedience. And the outcome of this choice wasn't just a few consequences like God putting people in a heavenly timeout or taking away their video games for a few days. It was a serious infection into the human heart. Sin entered and tainted the way people perceive the world, the way we perceive each other, the way we perceive ourselves, and maybe worst of all, the way we perceive God. See, instead of seeing the creation as something to cultivate and subdue in a benign way, something to nurture, we are tempted to see creation as something to exploit for our own economic gains or even for our own personal pleasure. Instead of viewing ourselves as image bearers of the living God and seeing in the mirror someone who is unique and beautiful, having something to offer the world, we see through the lenses that make us believe we are uglier than we are, less intelligent than we are, less valuable than we are, and sometimes we see ourselves far too arrogantly than we actually are. And if we can't see ourselves well, we have little chance of seeing each other well. Too often we see other people as objects of our pleasure or obstacles to our happiness. We see people as competition, or maybe worst of all, we see some people with eyes of apathy, not worthy of our emotion or our attention in the first place. And finally, our relationship with God is inherently broken. Sometimes we perceive him as domineering when he's actually the one who gives us freedom to think in the first place. We see him as judgmental when in fact he is a God of grace and self-sacrifice. We see him as the cause of anything bad that happens in the world and somehow we neglect to, to be thankful when anything good happens as though, as though we caused the good things to happen. And with a perspective like that, to live forever would be literally a living hell. And so God, out of his mercy, cuts off access to the tree of life. Uh, whether that's real or metaphorical, it does not matter. We do not live forever as a consequence of this sin. And he sends us out of the, the garden and to the east of Eden. But, as we have seen throughout this whole series, these years of traveling together through these books of Genesis and Exodus. That's not the end of the story. Humans can't do what we started. We could never undo sin, but God would do something. He would win his people back, not through magic or brainwashing or coercion. He would do it through a relationship. And he would be faithful even when we are not. And that is maybe what one of the truest definitions of love really is. Being faithful to someone when they are not. That's what God is for you and me. And so he works through a man named Abraham who had a family who becomes a people, Israel, who becomes slaves in Egypt. Who are redeemed and rescued by this great father God. And this people couldn't come into the presence of Eden, but he would bring Eden to them. Enter the tabernacle, what we've been talking about. In fact, uh, two groups of our kids uh, over these last few weeks have created tabernacle kits, which I think we're going to get to see one later, uh, maybe in the dinner time. They're pretty awesome. And at the end of Exodus, in the 40th chapter, we have a summary description of the building of this tabernacle. 
Just as the first creation is described as taking seven, uh, in seven motions or seven days, so the creation of the tabernacle is also described in seven movements. The tabernacle is nothing short of God's presence dwelling in creation all inside this tent, this mobile temple. And God gives specific instructions on how to build this mobile wormhole between heaven and earth, a porthole between dimensions, a place where heaven and earth kiss. And it's a com- uh, it is completion that's exactly what happens. God comes and dwells in this tabernacle. Listen to the final words of Exodus 40, which is the final chapter in Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Oh, for the people of God, this is extremely good news. After all, eight chapters before this one, these are the same people who were worshiping a golden calf who had completely broken like several of the Ten Commandments and broken their covenant with God. They had sworn allegiance to God and then they're worshiping this golden calf. It's crazy. They almost got zapped. They almost got annihilated except for Moses interceded for them and God relented. And so, so what we see here in, in chapter 40 is the, the, the presence of God has come onto this tabernacle. He's dwelling with his people. He not only has forgiven them, but he has agreed to, to guide them through the night and through the day to, uh, to be with his people and see them into the promised land. But at the close of Exodus, there's still a hint that things are not quite right. See, that there's more here than in humanity's relationship with God. Any, any guesses to what that clue might be in the text I just read? Any guesses as to why I'm saying things weren't quite right? pillar of fire and smoke, the presence of God, the glory of God filling the tabernacle. What's that? Oh, that's it, Brent. Let me read it. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You would think, at least I would, I'm not going to speak for you, but if anyone could draw near the presence of God, it would be Moses. But here in the text, not even Moses could come near What does that mean? It means that not even the most humble man alive, if not even the greatest human leader could draw near to God, then something else would have to happen. Or as we've come to find out through the rest of scripture, someone else would have to come and repair what was broken. Now this is a review of several weeks and several years of sermons, so I'm not going to go into great detail. But be reminded that every aspect of the tabernacle And every aspect of Israelite worship was pointing to something more, to someone more. It's pointing to Jesus. And Matthew's gospel is blunt in that the angel Gabriel is telling Joseph that the child inside Mary's womb should be named Jesus and known as or called or titled Emmanuel, which literally means the with us God. 
And in John 1, 14, we read that Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now check this out. It, it goes on to say in, in John's gospel that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses, as great as he was, could only take us so far. But, but the word made flesh, Jesus in the flesh, tabernacling among us, he's something quite different. Not just a uh, like Moses, but better type figure, but someone altogether different. It says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or literally exegeted him, made him manifest that Jesus is God in the flesh, making him known to humanity. In other words, God is so holy that he could not be seen from a distance or could only be seen from a distance in a pillar of smoke and fire that not even Moses could draw near, not David or Solomon could be in his direct presence, and yet God is made flesh in Jesus. God is made visible. God is made approachable. And not only visible and approachable and touchable, but Jesus' character, his, his attitude and his compassion, his wisdom and his love, this is all a reflection of who the Father is. If that's what the tabernacle was pointing to when God would fully dwell in us or with us, then Jesus has fulfilled this temple and tabernacle. He is God with us. Where are you? Let me take the apophatic approach for a minute. Let me tell you where you're not. You're not living in a time before Jesus. You are not living in the time of the tabernacle or the temple. You are not living in the days of Ezekiel when God's presence departed the temple. All that is part of our history together as the people of God, but you and I are invited to so much more. You and I are living in a different age, the age of the church, the age of the spirit. Jesus has ascended and gone to be with the Father. He is reigning over all creation. How is it then that we connect with God if not through a temple or a tabernacle or a sacrificial system? How do we know him if Jesus is no, no longer walking on the earth? Elsa gave us the answer earlier when she read from John 15. We abide in him. We remain in him. His metaphor in that passage is so helpful. Jesus is the true vine and his disciples are the branches. If we remain in him, connected to him, drawing our life from him, we will bear much fruit. But if we try and go on our own, we won't bear any lasting fruit. In fact, we'll shrivel and die. The question of the Bible is never, is God with me? The question of the Bible is always, am I with God? Let me say that one more time because it's simple and significant. The question of the people of the Bible when they're asking the good questions is never, is God with me? The question is, am I with God? God is for us. God is for life. 
He is the king of creation. He doesn't pick sides. He says, here I am. I'm for life. Come to my side. Come to me. Come abide in me. So how do we abide in him? I just want to leave us with three simple takeaways as we kind of wrap this series up together. First, we seek him. We respond to him. It's cool that it's this time of year because there's a built-in mechanism in Thanksgiving, the holiday itself. You know, it's easy to go through life enjoying the simple pleasures of a fall walk or a good conversation or something good to eat at the table. It's yet another step to say, I am thankful for these things. In fact, that's kind of a trendy thing to say. Um, Television people say, oh, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for this and that. But still, when I say I'm thankful for something, it's kind of like, look at me, I'm thankful. I'm practicing Thanksgiving. But the person who's abiding in Christ says, I thank you, Jesus, for A, B, and C. It's a little bit different step. It's a small nuance, but it, it puts the emphasis on the giver rather than me being thankful. We respond in a personal way to the one who is gracious and good to us. We respond in a personal way with our fears and our regrets and our confessions and our anger. And when we bring our whole selves before Jesus in this relational way, whether it's through prayer or through writing a letter to to Jesus in your journal or some other creative way of communicating with him, that's one of the ways we abide in him. He wants to to know us. He wants us to to speak to him. Man, you know, just thought of this. I, I just read from Psalm 50 at that prayer time earlier in the service when we were talking about how not to please God, like the wicked people who think God's not watching so they're gonna get away with all of this stuff. Right before that passage I read, it's like, the psalmist is trying to wrestle with how to please God. You know, if, if I were hungry, uh, God is saying this back to them. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I mean, the whole world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Check out what God wants. This is in Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Chapter 15. I mean, verse 15, call upon me, call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Isn't that great? What God wants is your heart. He wants your, you to acknowledge him. He doesn't say you have to have anything right or correct. Call on me. If you're a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or uh, have a relationship with anyone who might seek your help. Isn't it, like, like it would drive me crazy if I, if I saw my kids struggling with a real problem and they're going to all these other sources when I'm like, I love you, I'm like right here. It would be hurtful, let alone frustrating. I mean, how good does it feel when we can help each other out? I, I think this is part of the Father's stance toward us is just come to me, that's what I want. I, I don't care about all the sacrifices and all of these other things. I want... I want you to know that I love you. You can thank me for these good things. You can come to me when you're struggling, when you're hurt. This isn't really a sermon on spiritual practices. We've done that. You can look them up online. So I'm just gonna leave it there for as far as how you do this. But it's more of an encouragement that God is with you. How are you trusting in him? How are you abiding? The second way we abide is by participating. 
in a group of abiders. I, I worded that on purpose. You know, one way to say that is participate in a group of believers, which is what we do. There's weird connotations with the word belief. Somehow in our culture, we've gotten to this place where you can believe in something and not do anything about it, like an intellectual assent. So what I chose to say is participate in a group of abiders. I need to be around people like you who are trying to abide in Christ because there's a lot of other people I'm with who don't even think about God or Jesus. And it's really easy to go down that path. I, I, it's kind of like if you've ever tried to train for, I don't know, triathlon or half marathon or whatever it is, pick something, go to the gym. It's so much easier to be consistent if I'm doing that with a partner or with a class or with a group than just trying to be a self-starter. Like I'm a horrible abider by myself. I need, call me weak, I don't care. I, I, I need my weekly Bible study. I wouldn't prepare as much if I didn't have that built into my week. I need you in this setting. I need the, the people that I, I get together with uh, throughout the week, to other abiders to encourage me. And, and sometimes I get to encourage you and, and it's, we're in this together. The bottom line is that we need each other. Whether or not you like every single aspect of a Sunday service, I don't know anyone who likes all the aspects. Um, it's important to be in community and to be reminded of the story of God and our place in his story on a regular basis. And I don't mean like regular attender like once a month. Good for you if that's where you're starting from. Um, get, get more consistent. <laughs> um, we need each other on a more regular basis. People to speak the word of God to us, people we know and trust that have our best interests in mind, people that will call us out on our excuses, our BS, right? And people that will know us well enough to say, ah, that's, that's not a good choice. <laughs> I need that. And frankly, you can't just do that by showing up on a Sunday. We have to make an effort to be invested in each other's lives one of our core values at Lettered Streets Covenant Church is to live an integrated life together, a life of shared worship, of friendship, of study, of service. On the one hand, I'm kind of preaching to the choir. I mean, we just, we just did a whole church retreat. 126 of us took time to get away. Like, I get that. I get we're doing okay. But the minute we just start, like, patting ourselves on the back, like, yay, team, we'll stop growing. So let's keep growing together to keep, keep pushing our own personal boundaries and and, and pursuing relationships so that we're stronger together. So abiding in the vine has this aspect of, of thanksgiving and personal connection with Jesus. It has a second aspect of being part of, a, of an abiding community. And, and the third way is by practicing being with Jesus in the places he would be. He would be serving, wouldn't he? He would be with the lonely, I am thankful for you if you have a great nuclear family or a great extended family. Um, there are other people whose families are just deeply broken. And of all the times of year when we think, yay, family, Thanksgiving and Christmas, those are some of the hardest times of the year. I think Jesus would be paying attention to who, who's lonely. And you know what? Sometimes we're surrounded by people, aren't we? And we can feel lonely. You know that that's true. 
to be surrounded by people, even people that we, we sort of like and love, but we can feel lonely. And so let's pay attention. Jesus would be with the lonely, and he'd be recognizing that, especially in this acute time of year. Jesus would be with people and investing in them all the time. We may be small, we may be young, we may be small, but we can learn and love and do. Yep, that was the song our kids sang. And do, right, and Jonas would. um, This is a rhetorical question. Who are you discipling? Doesn't have to even necessarily always be Bible stuff, but some of you have great transferable skills and there's young people or even people in your own peer group who could use professional help or just basic mentoring. Sometimes we get too separate and and sacred and secular, but I guarantee you if you just help someone with life coaching from a Christian perspective without all the Bible verses, you would be discipling. Okay, who are you discipling? Everybody knows something that's transferable. Stella helped me read some musical uh, uh, music the other day because she's learning all the symbols. I only know the notes. It's a metaphor day, Dad. <laughs> Whatever. Who are you mentoring? Right. Jesus would be doing the things that he talked about. He'd be doing the things he preached about, and he'd be trusting in the Father. How do we abide in the vine. God's presence is with us. He's the with us God. We do it by giving thanks and by relating to him, by sharing our heart with him. We do it by being with the people who are also trying to abide in him. And we do it by doing the things that Jesus would do, being in the places where he would be because he is in those places. So leave us with the question, where are you? May we find ourselves saying with increasing conviction and consistency, I am abiding in Jesus, the God who is with us.